Well, folks, the election is over. And what a monumental election it was. I think it's safe to say that we have entered a new political paradigm. A lot is still to be determined, and there's still a lot of uncertainty. I know a lot of people out there are dealing with a ton of emotions right now. Some positive, and many negative. I think now that the election is over, we have to stay focused on not giving in to apathy, not giving in to cynicism, and not giving in to despair. Now more than ever, that is of critical importance. Because the folks listening to this podcast, the people who truly believe we can affect change, are our best chance to tackle the challenges that we face as a nation. If we pull ourselves out of the game, if we're sitting on the sidelines, then the history books will be written for us. Being in between the lines, being a participant in the game, it's going to be critical. It's going to be vital. We remain our best hope for the future. So we must keep building. We must keep fighting. And we must keep creating. I would like to encourage everyone out there to turn off social media, at least for a little while. Unless, of course, you're trying to tell your friends about this podcast, then by all means. But also to definitely turn off cable news, because that's only feeding negativity. And that will become a dangerous feedback loop. Break that loop and do something that affects the future for the better. Be a part of the solution. Keep fighting the good fight. While the reality of a Trump presidency poses many challenges, particularly around sustainability and global warming and equality and social justice, those challenges need to be met with action. We must go toe-to-toe in the political arena. In the social and cultural realm, we must have those difficult conversations with our friends and family. And in the business world... I remain incredibly optimistic about the potential represented by building businesses as a force for good and using business as a force for change. These will be the keys to building a better tomorrow. We must remain vigilant. We must remain resolute. So take a deep breath, pick your head up, and enjoy this upcoming episode. We have a very timely and salient episode today about fighting the good fight, we are going to be joined by Steve Feinberg, the founder and former CEO of New Era Colorado. New Era is an organization that is focused on registering hundreds of thousands of young people, and they played a key role in a number of political battles. And I think there's going to be a number of great lessons to be learned, and hopefully some relevant topics to discuss with your friends and family in the coming days. This is going to be a fantastic episode, and I hope it inspires many of you out there. We're going to be covering a broad range of issues, from building a grassroots political organization, to the tactics of political disruption, to navigating your political enemies. And then we'll be getting into some of the more classical political maneuvering at the local and legislative level. I do want to note that this interview took place at New Era's offices in Boulder, Colorado, so there will be a little bit of background noise periodically. I also want to note that this interview was recorded prior to the election, and Steve Feinberg was actually running for a state Senate seat here in Colorado. He has since won that seat, so I want to offer him a big congratulations. Job well done. He's now going to be moving from the political activism world into the arena of legislative politics. I'd like to wish him the best of luck. So stay tuned. This is going to be a great episode, a fascinating episode, and an inspiring episode. Thanks, Steve, for joining me today. For those who don't know Steve Feinberg, he's the founder and former CEO of New Era and one of Colorado's aspiring politicians. So, Steve, I'd like to ask you to explain a little bit more about New Era to our audience, who they are, what they do, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Sure. Yeah, so New Era Colorado uh, is an organization that we founded in 2006. Uh, It really was founded by a a small group of college, recent college graduates from CU. And we, you know, we were very active in the political scene on campus and then graduated college and sort of realized that there wasn't a great vehicle for young people to have a similar presence in the political 
sphere on a state level in Colorado, meaning there really wasn't a great way for a young person to know how to impact elections or to have how to have an impact on policy on a state level. There's quite a bit on a very super local level sometimes, like on a campus. Um, and then there are some opportunities on a national level, which I would argue is there are opportunities, but there's there, there aren't a lot of, of opportunities to actually have an impact sometimes, <laughs> it feels like. So we wanted to start something that gave young people a real seat at the table and access to to impacting the political process through elections, through policymaking, through issue organizing, um, and doing it in a way that built for the long term. So it wasn't just winning an election. It wasn't just passing a piece of legislation, but it was doing it in a way that while we did that work, we were training young people to be the organizers of the future. And so the the, the goal was always just to, to mobilize and empower young people uh, to, to work on the issues that matter to our generation. So those are issues that have a direct impact on our lives right now, but also probably more importantly, issues uh, that are going to impact our future in Colorado and make sure we're part of the, the the process of, of shaping a state that we're going to inherit and and have to, to live in. So so that was the whole the whole idea, and you know that was about ten years ago now, and we've made a I, time flies. You know, huh? Yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, it's it's just amazing that we're still here because yeah. because we were twenty two when we started the organization, um, which means we didn't know what we were doing whatsoever, yeah. <laughs> and somehow we figured it out. We made a ton of mistakes and learned from our mistakes for the most part. And, um, you know, learned a thing or two about organizational management, political organizing, um, sort of A to Z, everything that goes into that. And, you know, I think the beauty of it was that it was homegrown and we weren't part of some national entity, but we were just literally, you know, four people that wanted to do something um, real. And and that's what we set out to do. And I think in so many ways we've accomplished that. Uh, But I think there's so much more work to do. And you know, we've we've registered more than a hundred thousand young people to vote across the state. We've passed um, many uh, different pieces of legislation at a state level. We've passed ballot measure campaigns. Um, we've trained hundreds of young people to be grassroots organizers, which many of which work for partner organizations or are running campaigns themselves or running for office even. And you know, in so many ways, I feel like all of that work we did the last ten years was sort of um, building for what's next. Was building for what the 2016 election is going to be for young people as well as what the next 10 years look like in Colorado for young people. So I'm pretty excited uh, and, and proud of what we've accomplished, but I'm more just really excited to see where the organization goes in the next several years. That's fantastic. I, I feel like there's a few directions I want to go from there. Yeah, um, sure. But I, I felt like your answer really begs what is next. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. what, what do you see, you know, the, this specific election holding, and what do you see the next 10, 10 years looking like? Yep. You know, I, I think what, what we've seen in the last, I mean, even the last 6 to 12 months, is that young people are, are on the forefront of a lot that is happening in our country right now. It's not just about the youth vote. It's not just about voting or, you know, the, the voter die campaign or rock the vote or those types of things. It's now more, we're seeing that young people are on the front lines of actual real social change. And, and I think that's the, the sort of like the next level, right. Of, of political organizing where it's not just about one election, but it's about actually shaping the future. Um, in some ways, the very first taste of that was sort of 2008 election, um, electing our first African-American president one that you could argue young people basically put in office. Sure. And then I think in so many ways the the movement, if you will, has sort of matured and is now, you know, on the front lines of Black Lives Matter efforts. It's it, it's on the front lines of a lot of the the um, fracking fights yeah. and very much in the climate change fight. And and it's absolutely it's um and economic justice, frankly. I mean if you look at the the rise of Bernie Sanders he is not a natural candidate for young people. He's a 70-something-year-old guy from Jewish guy from Vermont. It's like you couldn't really, in a laboratory, create the opposite of what a young person's candidate <laughs> sure. might be. Uh, but it, the issues he's talking about are the ones that resonate with young people. And, and I see 
now and into the future, young people will be on the front lines of, of those huge fights, uh, economic justice, uh, campaign finance reform. I mean, th- those are the things that are going to shape uh, our, our you know, um, growth into adulthood as young people. And I think in, in so many ways, um, that's what's next. And, and I'm really excited to see New Era, yes, register another 100,000 young people to vote and shape our, our electorate. But that's just one piece. The, the other pieces are training people and recruiting people and building people to be moving the ball forward on the actual things that matter in our lives. Having um, that ripple effect, yeah, if you will. Yeah, it's a ripple effect and, it, and it's, um, it's, it's self-organizing. You know, it's no longer about just simply what institutions will mobilize people, but how are people mobilizing themselves in one another? And, and I think that's... You know, if any, it's it's kind of like the Uber or Airbnb of political organizing in some ways, where there's going to be a lot more organic campaigns, organic fights, and organic uh, victories. I think in the next five years, and and that's really exciting. I think it's going to create all kinds of challenges. <laughs> sure. And, and the establishment, or whatever you want to call it, will sometimes not know what to do with it. But I think in the long run, it's it's where we need to go, and it's. You know, some of these issues that we're facing right now are so huge that the the traditional ways of solving them are not going to work. Not that we need to get rid of them and throw them in the trash, but they need to be, you know, sort of supplemented with, I think, the new way of doing things that is more natural than ever to young people today. Again, just kind of staying with that same track, how would you characterize that new way of doing things? You Mm -hmm. know, I'm thinking about the old way of doing things. As you know, guys in smoke-filled rooms, yeah. you know, a handful yeah. of prominent stakeholders yep. making decisions for the rest of us. And when you look forward and you look out at the political landscape and you look out at the American and global society, you know, how would you characterize what you see as the new way mm-hmm. moving forward? I think in many ways it's <clears throat> it's more driven by issues rather than institutions is one of the, the, the things that I think is, is going to be a big difference. So, meaning it's less about what party do you belong to. It's less about um, th- these, you know, institutions that have been around for a long time. Like, if you think about it in the past, the, the, the major entities in the progressive movement, if you will, were um, strong institutions. And, and I think so many of them are in, still incredibly valid. Sure. And still incredibly powerful yeah. and influential. Unions, NCAACP. Yep. And, and, they, and they represent and stand for huge swaths of the progressive movement. But there's this new, new effort that I don't think is mutually exclusive, which is basically people that are organizing among themselves, not because some institution mobilized them necessarily. Maybe somebody gave them the tools and the resources and really sort of got them to, to have that spark. But it's more um, that they're organizing around issues that have a very immediate direct impact on people's lives. And, and what we're seeing is that's really powerful mobilizing force. If, if you are impacted by fracking down the street, or if you are realizing that you are the last generation that's going to be able to you know, experience um, a world that, that isn't impacted significantly by climate change, I mean, th- those are... Those are things that you're not going to you're not going to necessarily think the way to solve this is by going to a weekly meeting and having an agenda and learning Robert's rules of order and doing all of that stuff. But you're going to think the way to solve this is to is to break some things. <laughs> and, sure. and I Disrupt. think in some ways that that doesn't work. And in so many ways it does, even if it's in ways that we can't totally see immediately. Yeah, that's fascinating because I, I, I hear that and I immediately think of the Silicon Valley business model yep. of disrupt it. Yep. And that seems so intuitive to the millennial generation. Mm-hmm. It's almost part of our DNA now of we expect disruptions. And sure. more and more, I think what you're, you're tapping into is you know, how do you be part of effective disruptions that can change the conversation yep. and can move <clears throat> dialogue forward towards solutions rather than just sitting in meetings yep. and talking for the sake of talking, yep. which is oftentimes what... <laughs> being part of the political process can feel like sure. in the moment, particularly when you're not seeing change happen at a pace that you'd Quite like enough. to see it. Yeah, <laughs> totally. 
right. and, and it's not to say that the only way forward in, in the way of the future is just simply only disruption of in course. a violent sense. Not, not I don't mean actual violence, but I mean like in a in a jarring sense. Right. I mean, I mean there there is. I I also think the the most perhaps exciting part of this is people that are disrupting from the inside, and in, in some ways that is is a really core ingredient i think you can't just be outsiders absolutely um and and expect the inside to change <laughs> as quickly as you want maybe you know and, and and in many ways that that's a recipe for for alienation but i think the exciting thing is thinking about how to merge this new way this new approach with with actually playing the game but but changing the rules a little bit defining the game yeah if you will yeah <laughs> Saying, "Hey, we we're, we're all stakeholders in this. Mm-hmm. I have a different idea about how the game should be played. You know, let's talk about the rules, and then we can talk about because yep. because I mean, the battlefield is democracy. Yeah, and, and we Absolutely. shouldn't like think that we want to totally transform what that is. It's more just we want to change the rules a little bit. We want to change who the players are. We want to impact it from different directions than maybe we're traditionally how it's been in the last forty years or so. But but at the end of the day, I mean." we should be embracing the democratic process to bring about the changes that we want. And it's not easy, but it's definitely possible if, if we, if we sort of understand the chessboard. That is the one thing that keeps me fundamentally optimistic about the future <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> to be quite frank yep. is that we still, while our democracy has its struggles and yep. its strains and, you know, oftentimes it can feel under threat. We, you know, you look around and we still live, in a democracy, you can sure. still feel that. Sure, uh, we still have free press, etc. Yep. Yep. So, <laughs> fantastic. Well, I do want to pivot back, and I, you know, again, there's tons to talk about in terms of going forward and how we get there. One of the things that really is like fascinating to me is you guys graduate, see you, mm-hmm. you're sitting around a table, <laughs> or you know, at a bar having a drink. <laughs> yeah, it's probably a bar. Yeah, <laughs> and. You know, what was the impetus, really? I mean, you talked about like not having that place to put your energy. You know, mm-hmm. There was clearly a demand there. You know, but, but take me through that process of how do you go from engaged college student to we need to start a grassroots political organization? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's funny. I was pulling up like our, our first press release the other day. And looking at some of the very early materials we were putting together, and, and it's like fifty percent of it is so off base, <laughs> and like pretty learning comical. curves, yeah. yeah. And the other fifty percent is like still what we're doing today, which is pretty pretty interesting. But I, you know, I think there are a few things. One is we were twenty two, just out of college, and like quasi unemployed, so so we could risk it, and we could we could have a big idea and pursue it. And if it flopped, then, you know, we weren't really too far behind from where we started. Back to square one. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, that's kind of the beauty of being at that age and in that place in your life is that you can sort of do that. The, so, so that was one thing that I think, you know, at the end of the day, it was just simply we just went for it. And, and I think as you get older, that's just harder to calculate that risk. Um, the equation but, changes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, but I think... Um, you know, we we went for it and made a ton of mistakes. We, like, incorporated our entity, like, six times because we kept doing it wrong. <laughs> you know, and, and we weren't sure even what tax structure we wanted to be in. And, and we, we were like, okay, I guess we need to have a board of directors. So let's figure out, you know, some important-sounding people and put them on our board. And we had a kickoff, and it was super awkward and, and hilarious looking back on it. And... and um, you know, we, we just did it one step at a time, and oftentimes we were taking a step back. Two steps uh, forward, yeah. one step back. Yeah. That's a classic startup. Um, yeah. But but it was <laughs> it was one of those things where, you know, it was a little bit of a fake it till you make it attitude. Fair enough. <laughs> and and that that's just um you know how it was and in some ways we were sort of faking it for the last ten years and I truly feel like we've not to be cheesy, but we've kind of made it. And now is our opportunity to sort of dial it in and, and turn it into something even bigger than we ever thought it could be. You know, it, it was a little bit of proving ourselves to those who didn't want to believe that we could actually be what we were saying we were going to be. 
And, and by doing that, you know, really we just saw it as let's build this organization as an entity, as an institution that's here for the long term, but at the same time, always being able to point to tangible victories and successes uh, like a campaign, right? Like a campaign is evaluated on if it wins or not. An organization is different, but we wanted to sort of merge those two concepts. So we were slowly building an organization that had a budget and a board of directors and an office and, and, and a brand and all that kind of stuff. But also, you know, every year or so, we wanted to be able to point to a very large concrete victory to show those who didn't want us involved that we were going to be here impacting the, the process, impacting the rules, impacting the elections, whether they liked it or not, until we sort of had more of a, a seat at the table that, that was earned. And, and at that point, it sort of then once you accomplish that, you can, you can take off. You know, I mean, that's when it can really... Your seat at the table is guaranteed, if you will. Yeah, like you earned it, you know, and, yeah. and, and that's also, I think also once you have that seat at the table and once people feel like you've earned it, that's when you can also start taking bigger risks that people don't want you to take, but you're, you're one of the players now and, and it's no longer like you're just some outsider that's, that's messing with the system. But, you know, some of your ideas and some of your campaigns and, and your fights that you wage now have to be taken a little bit more seriously because they know you can deliver. And I think that's yeah. where the power came from in a lot of ways for us. So if you're if you're willing to share, yeah. can I ask uh, if there's any risk that you guys are, are thinking about taking? In the future? Um, well, in the immediate future. Yeah. Yeah, if there's anything percolating <laughs> um, in a press release. My, and I'm, yeah, I have the exclusive right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, <clears throat> not, nothing nothing crazy on the horizon, I would say. But we are thinking at this point, sort of what we're, the, the risks that we're considering are how do we now pivot to a, a stronger, more loud issue agenda for young people in Colorado? So in the past, we would sort of, we would do the electoral work. We would wage uh, sort of a, a fight every once in a while, right? We would, we would wage a big fight against the utility company or you know, try to transform how elections are run in our state or something like that. Um, but now we're thinking, how do we do that more in the long term in a more comprehensive manner? Because young people are one in three voters in Colorado. They, they are a massive group of people that are, that are the largest generation in American history. They're the most um, diverse generation in American history. And they're the most progressive generation in American and so those three things it sounds combined, like a recipe for success. Yeah, I mean, it mind. sounds like yeah. a recipe for for having more having having a louder voice than they currently have, right? And and I think we're now at this point where that's not going to be something that anybody can ignore anymore. And and so how do we? You know, we've registered all these voters, and so many of them actually vote. You know, when we register voters in an election close to 90% of them actually show up to vote. And this year we're hoping to register 50,000 people in Colorado. That's huge. And, and yeah, I mean, that's huge. And, and it's, yeah, it can impact elections, but it's also at the end of the day, it, it then becomes a force you have to listen to. And so how do we now pivot to having that force actually create serious long-term change on a state level? And, and by that we mean, what is the agenda young people you know now we're, we're saying we're big and we're progressive and we're diverse and we're a generation that you have to listen to what are we asking for now and and how do we put that into cohesive narrative that electeds and politicians and the media and the elites and whoever understands what we're asking for and even knows how to deliver on that and hopefully more and more it's one and the same meaning some of us are making some of those decisions and it's not just us asking the old people to to, to pass some laws sure. for us but hopefully more and more of us are in the legislature or in city council physically in those seats yeah, and, and, and <laughs> yeah. actually you know legislating making the policies for our own future running the companies running yeah. the organizations yep. being part of the political process and yep absolutely yeah, in, in larger roles yep. if you will yep that's fantastic so you you'd mentioned when you're talking about new era the you know, a lot of the obstacles mm -hmm. and mistakes that were made along the way. 
And I was hoping that you could expand on, you know, how hitting those stumbling blocks has led to where you are now. Sure. And has almost, you know, kind of formulated your current identity. And then, yeah, expand on, you know, what those experiences have taught you about politics and about affecting change at a mm-hmm. local level. This was like our, we're basically having our 10 year anniversary this summer. And I just like a week and a half ago, stepped down as executive director. Um, and, and it was a, I did it for 10 years. Right. So, so it's, I'm in this moment right now where I recently have been thinking a lot about sort of like our growth and how we got to where we are and the impact. And one of the things that, I mean, it's, it's the best thing I've ever done in my life, hands down, but it was really hard. And I think sometimes we forget, and and I don't mean this to to ask for pity, but more like this work is hard and it has a toll on our lives personally. Right. Ask for empathy. I think that's that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the best decisions I ever made in my life was in 2007, I believe. So we started the organization in 2006. In 2007, I was, I told you know, the other folks that we started the organization with, I was like, guys, this is, this is hard. And I don't actually know what I'm doing. And I really think maybe to make this thing real and successful, we need somebody else. And I, I quit. I put in my two weeks or whatever. And I probably didn't even know two weeks was like a thing, but, but I told them that I'm out. Sure. You know? <laughs> and then, um, the best decision I ever made was that I ended up not quitting and I stayed with it. You was know, that your own coming like was that your own realization or were folks you know pulling you back and saying i looked at who applied for the job and i was like you know these people can't can't do it no i'm just kidding (laughs) (laughs) we don't have any chops here (laughs) um hopefully they're not listening Um, no i i it it was more of like a personal you know i i had conversations with a ton of people about it but it was at the end of the day it was like uh no you know i think there's still a chance that we can do something here i don't think it's over i i think I just need to take a little vacation or something and come back and be refreshed and recharge. And maybe do it for another couple yeah. of years. I didn't know I would do it for another nine years, but <laughs> that was like one of the best decisions I ever made. The, the second best decision I ever made, I think was basically two weeks ago when I finally did decide to leave. And because I left, I feel like at a time when the team we have right now is, is the right team to take it over. And, and so it's sort of like, you know, I mean, in politics, I've always thought it's like 98% timing. You can be an amazing person. You can be, you can have a great movement. You can have a great idea or an issue or whatever. It's not the right time. It's not going to work. And Barack Obama probably wouldn't have gotten elected president in a different cycle than 2008. Yeah. Just, just because of the nature of everything that came together. Perfect storm. Yeah. So, so, you know, so much of it is timing. And I think when it comes to the history of New Era, that's the case as well. We had a ton of roadblocks. We, frankly, we've had um, the, the the other challenging thing here is that it, when you're an organization that's a startup, that's hard, right? When you're an organization that's a startup in politics, it, it can be so much dangerous, so much more dangerous because. What do you mean by that? Because you inherently are entering a world where you will have enemies where you will have not only enemies like people that disagree with you, but these days, unfortunately, it's gotten to a point where your enemies are actively trying to trying to take you down. Meaning, um, men, you know, many of us know about the story of Acorn, right? It was an organization that was across the country. It was the largest advocacy organization for low-income uh, people of color in this country. And that's a threat to some people. Some people politically do not want more African-Americans in the electorate, let's say. Not to get all conspiracy theory, but I think it's just a fact. And I think the facts bear you out yeah, on that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so um, people uh, that didn't want them to be around to still be a force to, to, they didn't want them to register all these low-income voters to be entering the electorate and having this impact they came up with a strategy to take them down and they did it and they were successful. And now looking back on it, we know that what they did was uh, illegal and essentially lies and, and they fabricated situations and 
whatever. And and they took them down in the largest organization for low income people of color in the country was vanished basically overnight. And that was a lesson, I would say, for the right wing, that that's a pretty effective, quick way, pretty cheap too. And you don't have to be all that smart to wear a costume and enter someone's office and have a secret recorder to, to truly impact sort of like the battlefield, right? Who your enemies are and who they're not. And, and we saw over the last 10 years, literally organizations or people essentially trying to replicate the exact same situation that they did with Acorn with New Era. And part of it is because we're in a swing state. Part of it is because the demographic we engage are people that some people don't want involved in the process. And we're probably an easy target because we're a bunch of children <laughs> that, that, you know, on the surface probably looks like we don't know what yeah. we're doing. Um, but but uh, can you can you tell can you tell us give us an example tell us a story about sure. another organization or another group of individuals that try to do this yeah in a, oh, yeah, in we, a direct I mean, way I mean honestly we've had um, we've had f- fake volunteers that are actually wired and have cameras on them like volunteer with us for the day and and the thing is they're not trying to catch us doing something illegal because we're not doing it. Right. They're trying to catch us, say something, do something out of context, edit it, and then release it on the internet to create hysteria. And then Fox News, et cetera, repeats it. It's all about and the then, optics and then so it, often Yeah, and then it results in donors walking away or whatever. And then, like, maybe two years later, it comes out in some, like, you know, page 34 newspaper article that actually we never did anything wrong. Right. But it doesn't matter because the impact has already happened. And that's what happened with Acorn. I mean, the, the guys that that did that, I'm pretty sure, uh, got in a lot of trouble. And, and those same people have tried to do the same thing on members of Congress and have like gone to jail for it, I'm pretty sure. Because you can't secretly record members of Congress and not get in trouble for it. But So, so um, how has that affected your approach to politics? I mean, it, I think it, many people <laughs> would become, you know, very disenchanted with the whole process when you're, when you're up against oh, that sure. kind of... I mean, frankly, it's gross. Yeah, exactly. It's just gross. It, it's like below the belt and it's the, the only response you can do that I think helps is by just making sure you're always following the rules. Have a healthy dose of paranoia just for survival's sake, right? Because just because you need to be a little paranoid sometimes. Uh, you know, I mean, it's like... For all the activists out there listening, <laughs> a healthy dose of paranoia... Yeah, it's not a is, bad thing. I mean, at the end of the day... It's a key ingredient to success. In some of these situations, <laughs> there actually are people out to get you. It, you, you're not actually imagining it. I mean, right? volunteers if, coming in wired up sound like yeah, somebody I mean, I mean, literally, out to get you. The so. guy who took down Acorn walked into our office with a fake mustache. <laughs> His name's James O'Keefe. Yeah. And, um, you know, he he literally pretended like he was like a, wanted to be a volunteer and he was interested and he came with a small group of people to our Fort Collins office. Uh, we literally trained our staff to know who he is. He doesn't live here. He's like a DC guy. And uh, they were like, oh, yeah, uh, come on in. Just to say, let me make a quick phone call. And we were like, yeah, that's, that's James O'Keefe. <laughs> Kick him out. And they kicked him out and called the police. And um, there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of newspaper articles because we, I think we're the only organization to ever uncover James O'Keefe before he was able to do In action? Yeah. yeah. Uh, we got photos of him like in our office. And it was pretty hilarious and kind of embarrassing for him. Um, well, that's what but, a healthy dose of paranoia does. Yeah, exa- then, I guess. exactly. Yeah. Because you know, at the end of the day, I mean, sometimes people are actually out to get you in in politics, and um, the way to 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 combat it is by just doing the work that you do in an incredibly transparent and in manner that is full of integrity. Because because you know, the, the one response could be go after them, put on a mustache and a hat, and go after them. Of course, but at yeah, the end of the day, the mu- start slinging mud. Yeah, I mean, it's not that is not our mission, right? You know, and, and it's important to keep your eye on the prize of, of why we are here. We're not here to play a, a game. We're here to actually win the argument and to make people's lives better. You know, eventually, sometimes you can get distracted, but it's important to keep your eye on the prize. I'd say. I hope you are all enjoying this conversation. I hope folks are taking notes on how to remain vigilant in the face of adversity. When we return from break, we'll be continuing our conversation with Steve. We'll be taking a deeper dive into Boulder's efforts to municipalize their electric grid 
and the key political fights that New Era helped win to make that a reality. We will also be discussing legislative solutions to climate change, as well as trying to foster a long-term thinking approach to politics. So stay tuned. So in addition to a healthy dose of paranoia, mm-hmm. what are some of the other key lessons that you think you've learned over the last 10 years? A handful of things. I mean, one is don't take yourself too seriously. One is measure your success, meaning have a ton of fun. Like, like I guess in, in politics sometimes, especially in the like young vote world, there are like two types of organizations. There's the organizations that just are about concerts and parties and like making politics cool. And they really don't actually do anything when it comes to, like, being on the ground and impacting politics necessarily. Like, you can't really point to concrete victories or whatever. And then there are other organizations that are way too buttoned up and way too just, like, all about, you know, how many comments got into that legislator on that particular bill or whatever. And we try to be sort of, like, in the middle where we can take – we don't take ourselves too seriously. We have fun. We, we are showing that politics doesn't need to be the thing that we think of it as. And you can also do it and have fun and impact things and create a better world. And so one of the things we do is we don't take ourselves, ourselves too seriously, but we also are incredibly data-driven, meaning that we always want to know and be able to point to the impact that we had. So we register voters, but we also track them and measure how likely they are to vote and we figure out what tactics are are more likely to get them to vote and we you know rinse and repeat and every single cycle our work is a little bit more dialed in and we've learned from experiments or tests that we've run and and that's important i think because you don't want to get too comfortable and you want to always be able to point to why you're doing what you're doing for your volunteers for your staff yeah you got to adapt yep and part of it is you trying to actually get the landscape to shift. So totally. And you want to <laughs> as that's to happening, to, yeah. some unexpected things are going to happen. You need to yep. change course. Yep. So it sounds like staying nimble is also a key to success. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, we're we've always thought of ourselves as the organization that's able to do what other organizations aren't allowed to do. What do you mean by Meaning that? Meaning, we can take risks. We can do things that make you sort of be like, "Huh, that's a little." A little, a little, uh, a lot of gumption there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And we can sort of, you know, we're the organ. If anybody's going to make politics fun and like do things that are sometimes like risky, it's gonna, it's us. Because no other, you know, the Sierra Club can't do that. Right. They serve a different role, which is an important role, but they can't like, you know, make lewd jokes about the caucus. Sure. <laughs> Whereas we can, yeah. you know, if and, they agitate. They're, yeah. they're risking they 100,000 donors. Sure. Right. <laughs> for us, you know, we will alienate some people when we do that stuff. But those are the people that weren't with us, truly, anyways. Right. And so, you know, we, we are always trying to make sure we know what our role in the ecosystem is and that we're serving that role. Well, I do want to pivot again mm-hmm. because one of the things that you guys were involved with and I think played a very integral role with was Boulder Municipalization. Yep. And... For our listeners, uh, over the last five years, you know, the citizens of Boulder have voted now a couple times to pursue a path whereby they take back the electric grid mm-hmm. and the electric generating and start running a municipally owned utility. Whereas right now, it's a you know investor owned utility, a for profit utility that has a mandate to a monopoly and has a right to a profit margin. Quite frankly. And one of the key things with Boulder municipalization has has been organizing voters at the local level. Uh, it is a process that's still underway. Probably going to be at least a few more years before yeah. it comes to fruition, if it is able to ultimately come to fruition. But I was hoping you could talk about why you felt like municipalization was such an important issue, mm-hmm. why New Era felt like it was such an important issue, and you know, specifically get into you know the tactics the organizing, mm-hmm. you know, some of some of, some of those things that are involved in you know, moving the needle on a conversation like that. Yep. 
Yeah, and and, and I guess I'll, I'll start by saying, <clears throat> you know, we so this is a an, a conversation and effort that's been happening in Boulder for for much longer than most of us realize. Boulder citizens and frankly a pretty small group of incredibly committed people have been involved in this process or, or what has led to us to where we are now for for decades um, and you know new era's involvement really started in 2011 but again it had been a topic of conversation in the city for quite a bit before that in 2011 um, we jumped in because it was sort of this moment where so, so cities generally sign contracts with Excel Energy, our investor-owned utility in this region, for about 20 years at a time. So in 2010, I believe, our contract was up, our franchise. And, you know, it, the question was, do we actually want to start pursuing this crazy idea of creating our own local electric utility where we would have so much more control over where our energy comes from, the types of programs we can implement, the efficiencies we can do, the everything. We can control it A to Z. Or do we want to sign a 20-year contract in an industry that is inherently being transformed almost every single year right now? Where, where just like the future is, who knows what this is going to look like in 20 years? We know it won't look like this, that's for sure. And so, you know, it, it was a moment where I think our community thought, okay, now or never, let's try this. Let's see if we can have this conversation, figure out what our priorities are, and actually go for it and, and create a model. Maybe not that every other city could, could replicate, but everybody could learn from at least and could potentially have an impact on driving the, the business model of investor-owned utilities slightly closer to where we want them to be. And, and so our involvement as New Era was, you know, we sort of looked at the conversation that was happening. We weren't totally involved in it at that time. And we thought, you know, this is clearly an issue that is important for young people's future but it's also something that yes it's just one city it's just a town of a hundred thousand people but it could put what we're trying to do on the map and it could put it could, it could again create a model for learning and create a, a laboratory that could actually drive a conversation that's much larger than just our community and so that was one thing that we were really interested in and then the the, the other piece was that we realized that the individuals involved were like policy people. And yes, they, they're like, in so many ways, brilliant community organizers as well. But they weren't necessarily electoral minded in the way that our organization just inherently is, especially when going up against uh, a corporation that has arguably the best political consultants in the state working for them. And so we sort of thought that, yes, this is an important issue, it can have a big impact, but we actually also think that our organization is uniquely positioned to potentially make the difference. And so we won't usually jump all in in a fight where it's like, it's already going to win. Sure. Because like, then it's like, we've got better things to do. Like you, you know, we, we don't need to, we should put our resources towards something that's going to make a bigger difference than if we weren't there. And so we thought, you know, this is going to be close. It was close. And if it was our extremely close yeah. for our listeners, the first yeah. vote came down to, I think it was a couple hundred, 200 votes, votes yeah. that yeah. decided it. And so, and so we thought, you know, we didn't know it would be that close necessarily. I mean, frankly, we thought there's a decent chance this won't even win. But we, you know, we were up against a million dollars. And again, like really good political consultants. And um, and frankly, essentially a fear campaign. And we thought, you know, let's try. We think we maybe our addition to this conversation could make the difference. And so, you know, our approach, and, and that was in 11. And then again, it was on the ballot again in 2013. Because Excel wanted to essentially roll back what we had, what we had won, and and that time we actually won overwhelmingly by two to one margin, because we were involved much earlier, and it was a much more, uh, I would say, strategic coalition uh, working to to defeat their measure, and and it was frankly just a lot of fun. The um, taking down investor and utilities yeah, is a yeah. lot of fun, <laughs> uh, and 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 I, you know, our approach was. The traditional way of, of approaching campaigns is, okay, you look at the map, you see who's, who are the, your voters, who are the people that are going to vote, and then you figure out, like, who are the people that are definitely with you, and you don't talk to them. <laughs> figure out who are the people that are definitely against you, and you don't talk to them. You figure out who are the people, that, who are the, the, who's the tiny slice 
of that pie that is actually genuinely undecided. And that's what just about every single political advertisement is, is targeting. So when you see ads on TV, if you're like a registered Democrat, registered Republican, or someone that just like already knows how they're going to vote every election pretty much, and it's not even a question for you genuinely, those ads are not for you, right? They're, they are focus grouped and tested for a very specific group of people that frankly is a pretty small group of people also. So if you think about it, they're spending billions of dollars on campaigns that are targeting, let's say, maybe 10% of a population. And yet those are the people who decide elections. In many ways they do. So that's the traditional approach. So we look at, we look at that effort and we say, this is ridiculous. <laughs> First of all, it's like incredibly expensive and inefficient and frankly undemocratic and is not like what we think politics is supposed to be about. Because at the end of the day, politics isn't actually just about winning. It, it should be about genuinely winning in a different sense, meaning having a real conversation with your community and persuading people to, to do what we think is right, not just simply winning by one vote. You know, the, the rule of thumb is 50% plus one. And that's like not the, yeah, sometimes that's just what you got to do. But especially in this type of a campaign, we wanted to, to win in a different sense. Change the conversation. Yeah. And so, so our approach is looking at that pie and we look at it and we look at how, you know, the consultants look at it and we're like, it's ridiculous. This is the game. And the only way we can win as, you know, this ragtag group of, of young people is by changing the rules a little bit. And, and so the way we change the rules is we look at the pie and we think, okay, so there's this like supposed 10% of the pie that we can communicate with that's going to even make a difference or we could think about all these people over here that aren't even in the pie, that aren't going to vote unless if we get them to vote. And so our concept is basically, instead of just looking at the pie as it is, we, we change fundamentally who's in there. And get so we, so we register lines. people to vote. We engage them. We educate them about the issue, get them actually mobilized and, and passionate about it. And then we throw them in the pie and it totally changes the equation. And so if we can basically then just ignore that 10%, let them make up their minds. You know, we'll target them a little bit. But at the end of the day, what's more important is that 50 or that 49% that is with us, we just grow that. Because there are people that are with us that just aren't participating. And the, the trick is just to get them to participate. And it totally changes and transforms the map that you're working with. When you talk specifically about tactics, yep. you know, how do you get to those people? So um, at the end of the day, that's where you employ a lot of just old school traditions of political organizing. You are registering people to vote. You're collecting their information. You're engaging them in a retail sense, one-on-one, face-to-face, and as much as possible, peer-to-peer. Meaning it's not your mom talking to you and telling you that you need to care. It's your friend. It's, it's the girl you have a crush on. It, it's it's the, the person you sit next to in chemistry class. It, it's, um, it's peer-to-peer which is always going to be more powerful than, than a paid uh, canvasser coming to your door. So, so as much as possible, it's volunteer-driven, peer-to-peer, and, and it's a genuine conversation, not a manufactured one. And, and then once you register them to vote and you engage them and you educate them on the issue, then it's you know phone calling, it's door knocking, it's community events, it's all of the above. The, their, in 2013, we literally, I think, just like did all of it. We, we just tried everything. For the very first time ever, we actually had a commercial on TV, which is so not what we normally would do. <laughs> but we were in this unique situation where we had an, an Academy Award winning director offer to make us a commercial. By the name of? <laughs> Luis Avoyos. <laughs> Fantastic. Who, who made uh, the Cove and Race and Extinction movies. And he he's just a, a really inspiring guy that is in it for the right reasons. And, and you know, we were like, wow, we can, we can have a... TV commercial, you know, basically for free, just an in-kind donation, and and it's uh, well-written and well-produced, and we, we put it on TV, we had it on YouTube ads and stuff, too. So really, our approach was a surround sound of education and engagement on this issue. If you're in school, if you're on campus, if you're at home, on the internet, no matter what, we were talking to you somehow. And can you then expand on why you personally think municipalization was such an important uh-huh. issue to get behind and what you hope yeah. it achieves yep. in the future, again, assuming that it, it actually materializes. Yep. 
I mean, it, it, there's so many reasons. I mean, there, there's there's the clean energy reason where at the end of the day, these investor-owned utilities are not going to budge unless if they're forced. And, and that's not because they're bad people. It's because it's literally just not how their model is, is set up. It's not how they are supposed to work. I mean, they, they are responsible to shareholders for the following quarter's profits, not responsible to the community's health and safety 20 years down the road. And that's just a flawed, uh, I would say, system. Um, Particularly in the 21st century. Yeah. And, and it's not just like, okay, it's capitalism that's not working because it's actually not capitalism. They're a monopoly, meaning that they literally don't have to listen to the market. And they typically just are, will not be punished when they don't do that. So they consider what we would say are customers as they, they consider them rate payers. They're not customers. They, they don't have to believe the customer is always right. The customer doesn't get to ask for the product they want. They just pay a rate, and if they don't want it, they can just not have heat in their house, right? I mean, there isn't an alternative when you're a monopoly investor-owned utility. And so, you know, there's a clean energy aspect, which I think is obvious, that a community that has the values of investing in clean energy rather than cheap coal, which, by the way, the only reason why they really are super into certain types of dirty energy is because they make more money off of it, not because it keeps rates low. And so, you know, we, we're a community with a certain set of values that was a unique situation where we were set up, where we, we had the opportunity to break away. And, you know, it's, it sounds like crazy socialism, but dozens of cities in Colorado are already municipal electric utilities, hundreds across the country, if not thousands, I don't know. I mean, major cities like Los Angeles is a municipal electric utility. So it's not a crazy idea. It's traditionally how it used to be done. And, and you know, our, our water system here in Boulder is a municipal utility. And this is just the same thing, but for electricity. And so th- there's that, but, but you know, I, at the end of the day, it's about something bigger for us. And that's that communities should be able to control their own destiny. They should not be in a corner where they literally cannot choose to, to do something that they want to do for themselves. And, and that's what I think is just fundamentally at the heart of this conversation, is that a city should be able to decide how it powers its community and should, decide, should be able to decide how its values are put into practice as, as a government, right, as a, as a group of people. And in the current situation, they, you know, theoretically have that right by municipalizing which is what we've been doing. But at the end of the day, we're now seeing that there's so many roadblocks that one has to question if we actually do still have that right, if it's this hard to do. And so that's, you know, to me, that's what I think is at the heart of municipalization. Is municipalization the answer? Is it, do we have to municipalize? Is it like, am I a partisan on municipalization? No, because at the end of the day, it might not be the solution. It might not be the best way forward. But I do think... It, is, it has a ton of promise. It's exciting. And, and I'm incredibly inspired by what we could do for ourselves. The only reason why we might not get there is because the system and Excel as a company are going to put up every roadblock possible to keep it from happening. Not because it's a crazy harebrained idea, but because the lawyers and the regulatory structure is going to keep it. It's a billion-dollar organization. Yeah, deep pockets. Yep. they make uh, thirty to thirty-five million in profit every single year from Boulder, which is a town of about a hundred thousand. Yeah, I mean that's an insane amount of money. <laughs> so I understand why they wouldn't want it to happen, why they would have a stake in keeping it from happening. I also understand why they wouldn't want other cities to get some ideas from us. <laughs> so that's actually a great transition point because the final thing I wanted to touch on is that you are now running for office mm-hmm. you're running for yep. state senate district 18 yep. uh, you are the democratic nominee and so I kind of wanted to transition this conversation to some of the other solutions uh, particularly at the legislative level yep. um, and moving away from <clears throat> the great work that you guys are doing at the activist level and the mm-hmm. organizing level and you know specifically start talking about what sort of pieces of legislation do you think that you can put forward and hope to put forward, uh, assuming that you win mm-hmm. the election, uh, that can 
change the conversation, particularly around climate change and our transition away from fossil fuels. Yeah. I mean, frankly, there's so much that we could be doing that we're not doing. So, so it's almost impossible to know where to start. But we have made a lot of progress, I would say, in the last 10 years or so as a state. You know, we, we have a relatively aggressive renewable portfolio standard. I would say it was considered aggressive five years ago, and these days states are moving past us. So, so we do have a, you know, some good requirements on how much of our energy profile needs to come from renewables. But I, but I think the, the e- one easy thing is increasing that. I mean, I mean c- cities and states are doing it. There's no reason why Colorado can't, a state that has pretty good access to this thing called the sun. So, and, and this is the renewable portfolio standard, which yep. just mandates that investor-owned utilities like Excel produce a minimum amount of renewable power as part of their overall portfolio. Exactly. And, and there are, you know, some things that could be tightened up in there. Um, uh, they, uh, you know, they get more than one credit if it's produced locally kind of thing. And, and that's great. I mean, that, that's especially good for the beginnings of this, of this effort to, to incentivize it and to build the local economies. But we can go further. Um, so that's like, a, you know, I would I say easy. It's not going to be easy politically, but it's it's a relatively straightforward. It's an policy. obvious solution. Yeah. And then there are other things. I mean, I mean, I really think we need to think more about storage. It's clearly coming. It's clearly going to be, it seems like, a bit of a game changer once it becomes produced. You know, the, the systems are, are produced at a scale where it becomes cheap enough and just simply economically makes a lot of sense to store the energy, especially the renewables that we produce to use them for later, especially when it's going to be cheaper, et cetera. So it's not always shining. The wind's not yeah. always blowing, yeah. uh, but we need our lights on and our yeah. computers running <laughs> at night or whatever. <laughs> when and, we want them, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and I think um, that's, there's so many reasons why that makes sense. And I think it's going to be much more cost effective in the next year, two years even. And, and I think, you know, we should think about some sort of requirement like we did for the renewable portfolio standard that utilities, cities, wh- whatever the, you know, population is that we're looking at should, I think, have some sort of uh, storage percentage, you know, like some sort of capacity uh, requirement, which I'm pretty sure they are not required to do anything close to that right now. So, and, and, and it's one of those self-fulfilling things, you know, the more we require that, the more the cost will come down because it, it'll just become, you know, the market will just sort of like respond to it. So, so the idea then would be you have maybe 5% of your grid capacity that has storage backed up. Exactly. Something, Some, like something, something, something like that. to that effect. Yeah. Maybe 5% is not the right number as yep. a starting point, but whatever that good number is as mm-hmm. a starting point, spur economic development around it, and then Companies continue respond. to increase yep. the capacity yep. over time. Yep. And, and you know, some of this is just changing the systems. So maybe the 5% is not going to have a big impact on climate. But starting at 5%, let's say, is something that just forces utilities or energy providers to start messing with their systems a little bit in, in, their, in their process so that they now know how to implement storage in their, in their workflow. And then from that point on, you can grow it. When, when the, the economic indicators are there, when the requirements start uh, increasing and things like that. So, so that's one thing I, I think we absolutely should be looking into more. I think, frankly, uh, the regulatory structure itself could use some updating. So right now, you know, we have investor-owned utilities. We have monopoly schemes in most of our state where cities really don't have much of a say and who, they, who provides them their energy. Customers definitely don't have much of a say. Cities, like, basically don't have much of a say either. And so thinking about how do we maybe not immediately, you know, open up the market overnight, like Texas or California or something, but, but think about how do we start giving customers and cities more choices that eventually maybe leads to something where where you actually can shop around. Right now you can choose who who is your cell phone provider. You can't do that in energy. And I would argue energy is a much more fundamental commodity for our future than minutes on a cell phone plan. And so if you have choice on, on if you go to T-Mobile, Verizon, AT&T, et cetera, and, and they can compete with one another, 
and that drives down costs, but also you know drives innovation. We should do that on energy, which is an area that is fundamentally challenging our way of life right now because we are headed towards a disaster. So, so I think there are regulatory schemes that we need to put into place to force the industry closer to where we want them to be. There's also things we can just take our hands off of in order to allow the market to innovate. And, and currently, we're not doing either enough. And, and it sort of is a, is a situation where nothing is really changing fast enough, except in the communities that are able to innovate, which Colorado is not one of them. So as it relates to this conversation, is there something that you would hope to, a piece of legislation that you would hope to introduce mm-hmm. and ideally get passed in the first, in your first legislative session? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I'm not sure if I'm ready yet to, to even know what that one piece of legislation is yet. I Fair think enough. I still have a lot of learning to do. <laughs> and maybe there's things I'm talking about that to the experts out there makes no sense. And I want them to tell me that, you know, and I want to learn because at the end of the day, I'm not an engineer. I'm a political hack. <laughs> but but um, I... Self-described. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I want to make... I mean, this is a huge issue for me, and it is a huge reason why I'm running. And if I can't make an impact from a state senate seat on this issue, then then honestly, I would I would think about figuring out where my my time is better used. And so, I guess what I'm saying is, I want to go in there and not hesitate, and I want to think about bold, innovative solutions. Not, I don't want to go in there and just like, frankly, piss everyone off and get nothing accomplished. I want to I want to have real conversations about what is the system that we want to head towards that we want to strive for and what are the steps that we can take in year 1 2 3 to get there. And it's not going to happen overnight, but there repeatedly we've seen whenever the industry says, "Oh, that idea is crazy, we're going to go out of business, rates are going to skyrocket." It's never happened. Every single time, you almost always they do what the the regulatory you know, policy asked for, and they usually do it before the deadline, under budget or whatever. And so I think they will, they will play. Yeah, I mean, they will play their role of saying no, 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 we can't do that because at the end of the day, they're only looking out for their shareholders' profits for the next quarter, and we need to be thinking about something much bigger. And that that begs what I, I will couch as my final question, which is taking a step back. You know, how do we, at a broader level, move away from that model where investor-owned utilities and corporations, quite frankly, are only focused on the next quarter's profits mm-hmm. for their shareholders? Mm-hmm. It's this model that espouses one stakeholder, and that's the shareholder, at the cost of ignoring everybody else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> clean air, clean water, people's health. It's just this notion that we're only ever worried about the short term when we all understand worry, being worried about the long term makes mm-hmm. a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. Saving for retirement makes a ton of sense. Saving for college makes a ton of sense. And how do we interject more of that long term thinking into our body politic? You know, it, it's, um, it is the, the best argument for government. You know, I, I mean, I, and I'm not just saying that because I think government can solve everything. Because clearly, uh, the the for profit business side is what is driving so much, especially in this area. But when when there is a, a failure in the system where we've set up so certain players that are that are the ones responsible for innovation, the ones responsible for providing these services are only thinking about a very narrow-minded thing for success. And we've identified as a community of people that actually success is bigger than that and is something different. The role of government then is very clear. And it's not to say government should mandate everything. It's to say that government should step in and have the interests of our long-term communities in mind. And that's when we get policies like the Clean Power Plan which, yes, is, is maybe off to a rocky start because of the Supreme Court, etc. But I think it's exactly the role government should be playing. The gov- government shouldn't be mandating and requiring everything. 
But when we see what I would say not to be hyperbolic, but I genuinely believe is the equivalent of a train wreck coming and actors who are mostly responsible are not changing their practices in time to avoid that train wreck. It is the responsibility and role of the people to organize and ask their government to step in and do something to protect our communities for the long term. I think that's a great place to stop. And thank you so much sure. for your time. Yeah, thank you. Really I really appreciate, appreciate it, it Steve. And yeah, best of luck on, on your campaign this fall. Thanks. Thank you. you all enjoyed episode two of a better tomorrow podcast please help us spread the word if you've liked what you've heard so far we would love it if you would recommend us to a change maker in your life and tune in next time we have another great episode lined up for you all we will be talking about the fight to kill the keystone xl pipeline as well as the ongoing battle in standing rock to defeat the dakota access pipeline we will literally be on the front lines of the climate change battle so remember to tune in until next time I'm your host, Nick Kerwin. Thanks for joining us.